Hi, welcome to Life Hurts, God Heals. I'm one of your hosts, Kim Ward. And I'm your other host, Kurt Flegel. And on this episode, we are getting to interview a good friend of mine, Jeff Bauer. Jeff's going to tell us a little bit about his life story, and I can promise you it's going to be really interesting. So without any further ado, hi, Jeff. Hey, hey, Kurt and Kim. It's uh, so good to be with you, and I... I've enjoyed some of the episodes that uh, you've brought up in the past and really just want to affirm what uh, what you guys are doing and sharing mm. stories and being an encouragement to so many. Thank you. I love it when we give people background on the person we're interviewing on their life. Yeah, And sure. so in this case, that's what really what we're talking all about, right? Yeah. I uh, actually grew, I grew up in San Luis Obispo. I grew up in a, in a home right over on uh, Jeffrey Street, which was interesting because since my name is Jeffrey and I live <laughs> on Jeffrey Street, that Aww. prompted a lot of confusing games with my teachers. You know, they would, in elementary school, they would ask me, uh, where's, where's Jeffrey Bauer? Yes. Okay. Well, what street do you live on? Jeffrey Street. And they'd think I was playing a trick on them. But uh, as it turns out, I really did grow up on a street that went by the same name as me. I'm the youngest of three, um, and that does come into play a little bit because my older brother and sister are 10 and 12 years older than me. So I was a, I was a distant planet, you know, after the inner two planets. And it was wonderful. I, I pretty much grew up with four adults in the house, you know, there, thereabouts that would attend to my needs. And uh, I got used to that as a young child. Um, I was also probably the most emotionally expressive person in my family. Kind of one of the, where it starts, I think for me in terms of when life started to hurt for me Mm. is, you know, when I was six, my sister moved to Chicago Mm. for college Mm. and never looked back. And when I was eight, my brother moved to Boston to go to college and never looked back. That's far very far. And I adored my older brother and sister. They were like, you know, the fun set of younger sibling parents. Um, And so I was, I would end up in the backseat of their cars when they were driving around to football games and different things in high school. And so for me, most of life up until age six or eight almost revolved around more relationally with them you know, than even necessarily my parents. And so when they left, I felt left alone. I mean, I still remember being at Santa Barbara airport, watching my sister leave for, for college when I was six and I was inconsolable. I mean, so much so that my dad actually went into a Caro's restaurant that was down there and bought me a Caro's bear, something to hold on to because I, I'm not sure he was going to be able to handle two hours of crying on the way home. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, like, I got the stuffed animal diversion treatment. Uh, no, it was uh, it's because he really loved me. It was like he wants to console, right? Yeah, uh, sure. But, you know, for me, that was the kind of the, the first sense of, when I say rejection, it wasn't that either my sister or my brother rejected me per se, but, you know, just being left alone. Like abandoned? Yeah. And because I, I tend to be very expressive and I have a very active imagination... It was sometimes challenging for me to make friends or I'd make friends and then they'd catch me in some kind of fabrication or lie or, you know, whatever. I'd be making up fantasies. And of course, then it was like, well, he's 
a little bit weird for me. And I had a string, I'd like, I'd, I had a string of friends that all moved away. Like, I mean, there were seven friends. Each year I would like, I'd make another friend. We'd start to hang out and then their family would move to Utah or their family would move to North Carolina or their family would move to Fresno or their fa family would move somewhere, you know, out of state or somewhere. And I just remember this, you know, f feeling that everyone I got close to left and it continued this hurt this this wound I think that I, I didn't really understand what it was doing to me at the time so for me processing kind of the loss of both my brother and my sister at least in terms of being around a lot and then this series of friends that I made that where their families left I I processed it very you know emotionally and more so than I think than than other kids you know on that spectrum of rational kind of thoughts data versus just emotion, feeling, intuition. I was way, way down on that, that end of the spectrum. The emotional. The emotional end of the spectrum. And for me, especially in my family, which is, you know, most of the men tend to be very, they're engineers, you know, pocket protector engineers, <laughs> you know, inventor engineers, uh, aerospace uncle, engineers, right? nuclear engineers. Yes. Yeah, I was very close with my, with, with my uncle, and he is just a wildly amazing intellect. Was an inventor, an, an electrical electronics engineer, did a lot of work for satellite technology and aerospace companies, you know, as a contractor. You know, when they needed to hire the really big brain, they'd call him off his ranch in Templeton, which is actually where my wife and I live now, you know, off the, off the property to, co to come into the big city and work for a few weeks and really solve a, a big problem. But you know, in, that, in that family of engineers, I often felt like I didn't really fit in. And it wasn't because anyone overtly rejected me. I never questioned whether my parents or my dad loved me or anything like that. I did question whether they understood me. Mm. Um, and I, I remember, you know, if I could sum up probably the most difficult part of my childhood was the endless hours of what my mom would say, Bill, you need to stop lecturing Jeff. And it wasn't so much a lecture, but it was these like conversations that would be go around in these endless circles of Jeff, why did you do that? Expecting a rational answer. <laughs> and I would say, for lack of a better term, I don't know. And then he would say, and then he would say back, well, you're the only one that does. Jeff, why did you do that? I don't know. Well, you're the only one that does. I, I think if I had to put myself back in his shoes, I think that he thought I had an information problem, right? If I, if I only knew the information, then I would make a rational decision. And really, it wasn't an information problem for me. I had unmanageable levels of emotion. And so I would do things oftentimes impulsively without considering the consequences. And I know that's normal kid stuff. It was just like, you know, that's always a spectrum. I was kind of far down on one end of that, that spectrum. And so I think I was, I was a conundrum to my dad growing up. Not so much anymore. We've, we've, we've definitely we have a wonderful relationship now. But yeah, as a kid, I don't think he really knew what to do with me. Not because he didn't love me. I was just, I was an alien in, in, in the house. So your brother and sister were very different than you? Very different than me, yeah. Mm. So I was not only 10 years younger than the next one, but I was a new breed. I was a... The only <laughs> alien on the planet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so this kind of string of friends that left, 
it culminated in, I would say, like one of my low points. One of my low points was my eighth grade year. I know junior high is probably hard for many people. Mm, yeah. But I had, I literally had no friends at school in, in eighth grade. I spent every recess and lunch period reading Isaac Asimov books in the library. Not because I loved Isaac Asimov, but because it was such a long series that I probably could stay in it the entire school year. Yeah. Um, yeah and it was, you know, right. like a fantasy that you could kind of get lost in. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just didn't want to be out on any playground, any field, any place where I was going to be rejected or abandoned again. And that's how I spent my eighth grade year. When I started high school, I was on, a, I think, a, a subconscious mission to find not necessarily just a tribe but to find someone that would never abandon me Mm. you know as as I turned kind of that page you know where girls were no longer repulsive to me I wanted to find my soulmate I, I listened to Brian Adams music that's how I learned to sing really high I attribute my great vocal range as an adult to singing Brian Adams music through puberty. <laughs> and that was all in an attempt to find the yeah. one. Yeah, and so in high school, you know, I had I had a series of series of relationships. It was I was I was going back through my uh, photo album of high school years with my own kids and I'm turning each page and like, you know, there's a different date, different girl on every page and I'm like it didn't seem out of place to me at the time. I was like, this is really, this was not healthy. That wasn't a good thing. Every single one, like I just went into the deep end emotionally right off the bat. I was going to run and jump into the deep end with anyone that would look in my direction because Mm -hmm. I wanted to find at least somebody that would never abandon me Mm -hmm. and who would understand me. Um, and so, and that, that can be very, very stifling if you're on the receiving end of that, just cause you're funny and you're more emotionally in tune and you can hit a baseball and like those things, stop, really high. Right, those things may start out to be like interesting, but once you realize that you're on a one-way ticket down to a very deep emotional pool right away, oh. that all, always ended in me being dumped. You? Yes. Oh, wow. And and so each one I tried to go deeper, faster. That, of course, then further reinforced this sense of abandonment. You know, if anyone really got to know me or got close, that they would reject me and leave. Wow. That's kind of a... A downward spiral. A reinforcing cycle that gets stronger with each revolution. Yeah. And so as a freshman, I I got introduced to pot for the first time. And that provided a dramatic escape from reality hmm. for me emotionally. And so that became very, very appealing. Every chance I could get, I would smoke pot. When you say it had a dramatic effect, like how did marijuana help the emotional? Oh, it didn't help. It just turned off the pain, the emotional uh-huh. pain. It was, it was medicated escape. Um, I wouldn't have been able to describe it as that at the time, but... As soon as I got high, my heart didn't hurt anymore because I was disconnected from it and I was in a fantasy world. Gotcha. So that became very, very powerful. 
um, in, in my life. So you traded Isaac Asimov for marijuana. Yeah, and there was a crowd of people, a tribe, that came with smoking pot. That became the, the launch of almost a double life, so to speak. Because in one sense, my parents did not raise me that way at all. And I still wanted them to be proud of me. And even the, the girls that I wanted to go into the deep end emotionally with at Soulmates were not the ones that were... In that crowd? In that crowd. Yeah. They weren't the ones doing drugs. They weren't mm -hmm. the ones like, you know, being ridiculous. And so in the one sense, I wanted the drugs, the notoriety, the tribe, the medicate, the escape and all that on one side. But then I had to keep up this this double life of like, I'm not that person. And so I didn't even, half the time, didn't even know what was true and what wasn't because I had to manufacture so many stories and so many lies and so many things that you, you lose track of even what is real in your own story. You know, if, if you want to think about what Satan's plan for me was to become completely disconnected from reality, from my identity, from the people that loved me, from any sense of being anchored, you know, so that I'd be the most spiritually vulnerable. Yeah, not I, in a good way. Spiritually not in a good vulnerable way. to his attack. Yes, yes, I want to say not the surrender to God of an open heart to a, fa a heavenly father that loves. Not that kind um, of vulnerability. But a vulnerability of being alone and away from all the people that care. Basically what you're talking about, that kind of vulnerability is the lone lamb or deer that is not with the, the lost sheep yeah. out, out among the wolves. The, yep. I heard somebody say, you know, no, and I forget who it was or I'd give them credit. They said, you're, nobody's ever really alone. You're either fellowshipping with God or you're fellowshipping with Satan. So if, if you're running from God, you're just opening yourself up to hear from the enemy of your soul. And I know that's really, really dramatic and I'm not trying to over, overplay spiritual warfare there. But for me, that was, that was real. Yeah. That was and very that's your real. story. What's yeah. interesting to me is when you're talking about running from God, in your story, it's equivalent, it seems to me, and you tell me if this is correct or not, but it seems like running from God was equivalent to running from your pain. Yeah. Like you wanted to run from the pain, and in doing so, you were running from God and yeah. what he had for you. It sounds like to me. Yes. And God had provided, I think, many people that would have been able to help me, but we didn't have a language for that kind of thing. When you say he provided people, like looking back who, in that season of high school, who, who were those people? I think, you know, uh, some, of my, some of my parents' friends and even, I think, some of our family friends. I mean, because, you know, my parents have faithfully gone to church here locally. And there was a number of families there that, you know, I'm sure would have been very willing to talk with me or help me. Um, but there just wasn't a language. I didn't really seek them out. And I don't think we, we didn't really talk in that way in our home. So... Yeah, you mentioned most of the people in your family were more left brain. Yeah, tend to be, yeah. So the emotional conversations about emotions were probably few and far between. Right. I remember there was one, there was one particular time where I had left baseball practice, gone with a friend, smoked pot, got really high, drove home high. I'm violating the, you know, the athletic agreement. And, you know, I easily was being very, very stupid in driving while completely out of my mind. 
I remember driving up to my to the house and seeing the dare van parked in front of our house. So that might date me a little bit, but you know the the campus officer that was assigned to drug abuse resistance education was trying to like track down why there was so much pot on campus and trying to you know interviewing parents and different things and so the van was parked in front of my house um, <laughs> and so like I'm, I'm pulling cologne out of the glove box and washing myself in it because I just hot boxed my own car you know this is not gonna go well so I walk in the front door and, you know, the officer and my parents are there. And, you know, the question is, have you been smoking pot today? Because, I mean, you know, like reeked. And uh, I, said, of course, said no, right? I haven't. I, I, we were just around some friends after practice, you know, down by Bishop Burger or whatever it was. You know, they were, they were smoking pot, but it wasn't me. And, you know, they're looking at each other like, well, we searched your room and, you know, we found all that you had stored in the desk behind your bunk bed. Oh, oh, you know, and then of course, you know, I'm just making it up. It was a friend's, you know, I, I had to hide it for them. You know, it wasn't, it's not mine. I, I'm, I promise it's not mine, you know. The officer kind of looks at it and says, I, I think you guys might have it from here. Let me know. So he left and I, I still remember, I, I was sitting at one end of the, the dining room table. My dad was at the other table and he said something, he said, I did not raise my son to be a pothead. Wow. And it was like the worlds crashed together because I was supposed to be, I wanted to be this guy, and yet I spent so much of my time being this guy over here, the other guy, and all of a sudden it just kind of imploded. You know, I think, I think the shame, the guilt from kind of seeing those worlds collided, um, I think I stopped for a while. Then, of course, you know, the pain is so prevalent for me, or was, that eventually I just went back to it. It got worse after high school. I applied to several colleges, but I was really too scared to leave my hometown. It's not that I wanted to live at home, but going to someplace unknown with the pain that I was carrying around inside, like the prospect of going to a new place was just overwhelming to me, even though the place I was in was not healthy. And so I got into other places. I was offered scholarships to other places, Academic scholarships. Huh. Yeah, I mean, as much drugs and all that stuff, I mean, God blessed me with a mind that could just can learn pretty easily. And so I could always get good grades, even though my life was an emotional train wreck. It didn't take a lot of work to keep good grades. And that was an easy way for everyone else who was looking in to say, hey, I really am this guy over here, that at least I can maintain the appearance of that in some way. Which from your family, it sounds like that's... That was important. Yeah. And, you know, my, my sister went to Northwestern and my brother went to MIT. Wow. Um, and so there was definitely some expectation there. I mean, even I remember the first day I showed up to high school, first period of ninth grade, the science teacher, Mr. Lopez, he starts looking down the roll and I'm sitting in the back and he looks over and he says, where's Mr. Bauer? And I'm like, here... Are you related to Michelle or Mark Bauer? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm the younger brother. And he said, well, at least we know someone's going to get an A in this class. Wow. That was the first thing anyone said to me on campus at high school. No pressure. Under pressure. Yeah. So, and then, of course, like everyone's looking and like, oh, man. It's like it was, I was ruined from day one. Mm-hmm. No. I just... <laughs> <laughs> but I, I got accepted to Cal Poly, so I 
I went to Cal Poly. That was really the only school I would have considered. Being able to live on my own made it a lot easier to do even a lot more drugs. Mm. Um, and so uh, I continued the same kind of downward spiral with girls. And while I was a freshman at Cal Poly, my girlfriend at the time, her parents were going through a very messy divorce. And so I thought she's going to be the one, right? Down the emotional deep end of the pool. Right? With you. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're going to save each other, mm. right? She had a, a mental breakdown, and I watched her get taken away in handcuffs by the police on a 5150. I remember, you know, the kind of the circumstances surrounding that. She was at one of her parents' house, and she had asked me to come pick her up. And when I showed up, I hear all this yelling and screaming and pans going on in the house. And, like, her dad was trying to reason with her, like, not to go with me, which was the right thing to do at that time. But she was like, if you don't let me go with him... She starts threatening to injure herself with a wow. kitchen knife. And so the cops showed up, and I never got out of the hedges. Like, I was hiding, and I watched her get taken off. And I felt responsible for that at the time. Why? I remember at that, that point, I thought, everybody that gets close to me gets hurt. Because along the way, you know, a, a number of the girls that I dated in high school, I either introduced to drugs, because that's what I did, and eventually, you know, the worlds collided, right? So if they were hanging with you, there was an influence. Yeah, there was an influence. And I started to realize, like, I don't have a good influence on people. Mm. And the people that get close to me, they get hurt. Like, maybe I should be alone. Maybe, maybe that's really where I belong. So after that, the spiral deepened. And what I mean by that is I didn't date anyone else at that point because I was too broken inside. But I never was sober for 10 months. I mean, I woke up in the morning. The first thing I did was do drugs. I was high all day. I was high in class. I was high all the time. And I would put myself to sleep, basically knock myself out into oblivion every day. And things were starting to sort of come apart. Like I was starting to miss things, miss classes. I was starting to not think straight. Things started to come apart in other words. I could not keep things together anymore very well, even the appearance of it. You know, at the very, very bottom, right, this is the incident that really, I think, you know, it was, the, it was when God turned the page in my life. And that it was the very, very low point was a, you know, Friday night and I was on my way. I was too stoned to have remembered to even put on my seatbelt. And I got in the passenger seat of a car with a friend and we were driving from Morro Bay where he lived to a party in the Laguna Lake area. And so that route would have taken us South Bay Boulevard and he liked to go Turry Road to cut from South Bay Boulevard over to Los Osos Valley Road. And... I remember it was about, I don't know, 10, 10.30 at night. And we started down and, you know, Pink Floyd pulse was blaring at the, you know, the top of the stereo. I remember that just because it got printed in my mind that, that night. Because as he turned from South Bay Boulevard onto Turry Road, I remember I heard a voice in the car say, Jeff, put your feet on the dash, like the dashboard. And I looked up because I was kind of slumped over and I looked up and I wanted to see if my friend had said that 
And I, I remember I looked at him and he was just driving. And I remember I looked at the speedometer and it was climbing past 60 miles an hour. And I looked out and it was just all dark outside. And I thought, that's really freaky. Like I started to be very scared. I need to put my feet on the dashboard. So I, I, you know, I scrunched up and I put my feet up on the dashboard so my knees were against my chest. And a few seconds later, he hit a patch of gravel on the road that had, that had fallen off the hillside across the road. And as soon as he touched the brakes to try and slow down, it just lost control of the car. And so we went straight and there's a point on that road where there's a left-hand turn that follows the, the road around the little hillside. And if you go straight, you go right down the probably a 30-foot embankment into a gulch. And I remember we just went right there. We went right through the weeds and then off. And then it was just utterly silent because we were falling nose first. And then all of a sudden, water. Nose dived right into ocean water. But because my feet were on the dashboard, I landed on my feet as the car nosedived into the ocean. Wow. My friend was wearing a seatbelt. It was, uh, I think it was a 1998 Saturn SL1, so it had a driver's side only airbag. The windshield breaks in, ocean water floods over the, the, the dashboard and just, you know, and then the car is like half full of water. So then I'm trying to get the, the door open. I can't press the door open against the ocean water. Luckily, manual windows. So we rolled the manual windows down, climbed out of the manual windows, stood on the roof as the car literally sank. It's dark. I mean, it's 1030 and it's cold. It's ocean water. Swim back over to the embankment, climb up the embankment, get on the road. And like two minutes later, a car drives by the other direction. We stick out our thumb and they, they say, where are you? Where do you want to go? We say, Morro Bay. We get in the backseat of the car and he drives us back to the house. I don't know who that was. I don't know if it was an angel. I just know we were in the middle of nowhere, left the car. So then we get in my car and we drove to the party. <laughs> what? Back to the party. I mean, well, you know, it's just that, the, just to give you an idea of my mental state, right? The car is sitting at the bottom of the tidal creek. Now, that was at a place where at high tide, we nosedive into water. One week later, so exactly one week later on that next Friday, there was a, a, a guy in a Corvette that went off that same cliff with his girlfriend at low tide, and they both died. Wow. So just to give you an idea of what could have happened. But I remember, you know, we drove to the party, and I, I couldn't stop thinking about what had just happened. Like I couldn't process it. And I was telling a friend that I had met. He played guitar. I played guitar. And I was telling him about what just happened. And I remember he told me, he said, Jeff, it sounds like God is trying to get your attention. Wow. And it, when he said that, like, there was like, all of a sudden, my heartstrings like started to resonate. Like, you know, where it says God sets eternity in the human heart. Mm -hmm. Well, you know who wrote that is Solomon. Solomon and his father, David, were both amazing musicians. And that word set means to tension, like strings over a lute or a harp. It Eternity is tensioned in our hearts so that when you get around what's eternal, what's, what's the love of God, your, the strings in your heart start to vibrate, you know, with that sound. And so I, when he asked me that question, all of a sudden the, the eternity that was tensioned in my heart started to go off. So I said, I said Steve, okay, so what do, what do I do? He says, well, you can come to church with me. And, and I said, 
like on Sunday? He said, no, our church is having an all-night prayer meeting. And since I'm in college, I signed up for the 2 to 4 a.m. time slot. I'm headed there right now. Whoa, what? Yeah. So he put me in his car with some uh, yerba mate green tea, and we drove over to Agape Church. Which... Just to, for, as a side note, this is a good place to say we are not recording in our normal place. We are recording in Agape Church right now. Right. Same church community. Same church community. So he drives me there, and I didn't realize like he had just rededicated his life to the Lord recently, and his uncle was the founding pastor of Agape. So he takes me to this all-night prayer meeting, and I remember I go in there, and I just sit there, and I just can't stop crying. Because I'm, I, it was the first time I could tangibly remember, like, no, I am feeling the presence of God. I'm listening to people pray and earnestly cry out to the Lord like it's real. Like we weren't reciting a prayer that someone else wrote for us. There was people pouring their hearts out to God and receiving things like in the spirit and releasing them. And like it was the first real spiritual experience, I'd say. Like I was totally overwhelmed by the presence of God, that this really was who I was looking for, like who I had been looking for. It occurred to me at, at that point while I was sitting there that my life was exactly like that car ride that I was just in. I was a pastor in my own life with no seatbelt, headed towards destruction that I did not know, completely emotionally medicated and disconnected from the reality of the darkness that was around me and the destruction as I was about to reach. And it was, it was God who revealed himself as first my rescuer. I participated zero in my salvation. Mm-hmm. I participated zero in me coming to some rational conclusion that, yes, I believe the God of the Bible because I've proved the evidence to myself. No, no, no. I was headed towards destruction with no seatbelt and stoned. And God rescued me out of that, according to his grace and his mercy. And I've never recovered for that because what he told me in that moment is that I was worth saving. Mm -hmm. That healed my heart and I was born again. And I've never recovered from that. I was at church every time it was open. Sunday mornings, Sunday morning prayer, Friday evening prayer, Sunday evening prayer, Wednesday night Bible study. I mean, anytime people would start preaching God's word, talking about Jesus, I'd just start crying and repenting. It was months of just renewal. And it was like I was, it wasn't just like I was born again. For the longest time, you'd say, what are you most thankful for? And I would say, I am thankful for peace in my heart. Like, I did not know what it was like to live without emotional pain until I was rescued. And I remember those first few months, like there was still a pack of cigarettes in the glove pocket of my car that went, that went unsmoked for a couple weeks. And I had my, my miniature bong that I had in the glove box that I would, I would stoke on at red lights that was still stuck there with half a bowl, Wow! you know? And then a couple weeks later, I, like I just sensed the Lord say, you can destroy that now. It wasn't, you can give it up now. You can destroy that now. I remember I got all that stuff and I crushed it in the parking lot 
Like I walked, physically walked on it. It wasn't because anybody told me to do that. It wasn't because I read a book on deliverance or like good spiritual practices or how to get free or 12 step anything. It was like, no, the Lord told me it's time for you to destroy that. I had to be the one to destroy it. I destroyed it. And that was it. I never had a single withdrawal symptom from any drug. Wow. After I destroyed it. All of that emotional deep end stuff really affected a lot of the music I listened to. And so I had like 200 CDs. This was back in the CD where we had to buy complete albums, you know, for 15 or $20. Yeah. And I had 200 CDs like, you know, Vertical Grunge. Horizon oh, and okay. Savage Garden and, uh, you know, Boys to Men and Dave Matthews Band and Metallica, Tonic and Stone Temple Pilots and Soundgarden and, and, and it goes on all, I mean, there's, there's many, but Pearl Jam and like all, all, all the stuff that was, you know, Nirvana, um, that yeah, that's, that's what accompanied this emotional state that I was in. And I remember then he said, and you can destroy those two now. Destroy. Destroy them. It wasn't because it was wrong for people to listen to them. And I want to say that, like, I am not against secular music of any, like, it's, that's not my beef. I'm just saying for me, that was a hook in my soul to what was dark and destructive to me emotionally. And I microwaved every single one of those CDs one at a time and watched them explode. You got to do that. I got to throw out 60 books. I remember I was, I had done youth with a mission and God spoke to me for the first time ever where I recognized his voice. And I went and did the summer program and I had brought books that, you know, you and I have talked about that I love. And obviously eventually I got permission to read them again. Mm -hmm. But at that point, it was an escape mechanism for me. That was how I avoided all the pain that I was going through with my family and everything else was with those books. So I come home, because I'd only brought 10 books with me, and that was such a small portion of the mm, four or 500 books. And God's like, in this season, you need to get rid of those and throw them in the garbage can. You can't just keep them for later. You need to completely just toss them out. And that was probably 10 years worth of collecting those and going to thrift stores to find them. So it was a time and money investment. And I just remember going, okay, crying my eyes out, just tossing the books in one at a time. Hmm. Probably one of the hardest things I'd had to do at that point for God, besides going on a missions trip and actually having to talk to people. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? I was not, not my favorite thing about missions. Hmm. But wow. yeah, I would totally resonate with sometimes you actually have to throw away or destroy things. Yeah. It's crazy. It's not that they were bad. But they were idols for both of you. Yeah. yeah. Like you said, it's not about whether this music is good or bad. It's about what it was for you. Yeah. It was an idol. It an idol is anything that you're worth compromising your character for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, a substitution for the relationship with God. This is what's making sense to me these days. That everything in this world is temporary. Which means it has an end. It dies. When we look to those things or people for our be-all, end-all, for our life, we're chasing death. And only God is eternal, which means only God is life. And what he's doing is actually saving us from our pursuit of death. That very same thing you said about the car ride. 
that you were headed for a cliff spiritually. And so, yeah, our idols are actually temporary fixes that will take us down with them when they die, when they end. As I'm thinking about the whole cycle of those girlfriends, right, of seeking to find one person who would understand you, looking to someone who was finite and temporary like you, all of those ended, and in those endings came more pain. More death. That's right. Which just made you... More hurt. More hurt and... And more hurting of others, too. I mean, like, it it wasn't that I was just the victim of the situation. I mean, there there was plenty of pain to go around. Yeah. Which brings me to this point. So now you're going to church all the time. Whenever the doors open and you're soaking in that, right? Mm -hmm. And you're receiving that life. It's just sucking it in, what you've been missing. But just like what you said is like when you were receiving death, you were in hurting, in hurt and pain, you were, you were perpetrating that. You were giving, you were reflecting what you were receiving as I say it. So my suspicion is, and this is what I want to ask is, in that time of soaking and receiving, there wasn't uh, long before you were also giving life in some way. It was synonymous. Yeah. Tell, tell us, like, what, what avenues did that look like that God led you into as you were soaking and receiving life that you were reflecting that to others? I've always been a musician, and I remember I had gotten pretty far in, when I say the jazz scene, it's not that I was a great jazz player, I say that, but I loved being in the jazz scene. And I remember after I had this experience, I had this, I, this sense from the Lord, it was like, you, you can set your, your trumpet down for a while. Not destroy it, but you can set that down. I want you to pick up the piano again. And so I say I got I bought a keyboard and I joined the worship team and that became like my my family. I sang with the worship team, I played, I served the church, but also, you know, more so than that, like I, I would go we'd go down Friday and Saturday nights, um, and we'd go wait for closing time at bars and I'd we'd go watch for people that were drunk and alone and hurting mm. and we just go go encourage them we go try to give them rides or give them a safe place not not just pass out tracks but just like i mean we went to bring the love of the lord i, I did that for maybe not a year or at least a couple of years before graduating college and moving to a different place where it wasn't quite as easy to do that but i did on-campus bible studies for anyone, not with any club, I'd just like go start asking people. I'd go talk to people about Jesus all the time on campus and, uh, you know, just get people, anyone, anyone to come and read the Bible with me. Like I'd, I'd cry every time I read the Bible. Mm. Um, and just wanting to, sh- to share it. Like, I mean, I, I, I lived pretty much in a almost constant state of like, spiritual euphoria. I gotta say, like, I'm really emotional, but that's also a gift. I had trouble getting around it as a, as a young person, but the ability to perceive how God feels about things and how I sense the spirit moving and how I sense how God feels about other people that I'm around can be very, like, it was powerful. And just, you, I would say euphoric, it was, um, it, it really was euphoric because it was it was i was connected 
to the one who is eternal, everlasting love for me and for everyone around me. You were looking for someone to dive in the deep end. Yeah, and there was... And you found the person who is the deep end. Yeah. That, that became my reality. No limits. No limits. To that love. There's no limits. Mm, that's amazing. Inexhaustible. You know, when you're talking about, especially the ministry that you created with a bunch of people going to the bars and, and looking for those people, what I heard in that was how God used your mess, right? You felt isolated and alone, abandoned, and then you went to find those people, right? Yeah. And man, it just reminds me of Jesus' words, right? I will leave the 99 to go look for the one who has been isolated and ready to be picked off by the predator, right? That is like what you received was that euphoric love. You jumped in the deep end and then you followed this being who did the same thing for you, that you followed him to do that for other people. The one who said, put your feet on the dashboard, Jeff, and saved your life, right? And, and stopped the enemy from picking you off, right? Who came and found the one who left the 99 to find the one who was in that car. And now you're following him to find the other ones who have been isolated and are being targeted for destruction. And so what you've received is what you're reflecting. And when you're following him into that same journey, that's all he asks of any of us. Follow me. And this is where I'm going. You know, so many people sometimes feel like, God, where are you taking me? This feels really lonely and isolated. And God's like, do you understand that I'm taking you to find the people who are lonely and abandoned, who feel that way, so that you can be me to them? And that's what you did, right, like you said, right from the beginning. That's amazing. That's, the, that's being a disciple, a follower. Wow, awesome, man. I'm going to tell you about one person. Okay. I've never told anyone this. Whoa. There was one person on one of those nights, it was at the very end, and it was over a Christmas break because my, most of my, my roommate and most of the people in the house where we were living were gone back at home. So I was out, I was out downtown, and it was probably, I don't know, 3.30 in the morning. I had parked kind of south of downtown. I drove by the old, the Greyhound bus station, and there was a guy in a wheelchair in, sitting in front of the Greyhound bus station. And I went up to him and I said hello because he had no jacket. He was just sitting in a wheelchair in the middle of the night in front of the bus station. No jacket, no nothing. Nothing. It was probably, I don't know, it was probably three in the morning. Whew. And uh, I said, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm waiting. I'm here for the bus that's going to be here at 11 a.m. I have some family that lives, you know, I forget where. And I get up to close to him and it was just, it was stench. And then I started to realize, like... He can't move. He has some kind of like debilitating arthritis or muscular, some kind of degenerative disease. He can't move and he has soiled himself and he is sitting in his own feces and urine in this wheelchair in the middle of the night. And I, I heard the Lord say, I want you to take him home and bathe him and give him a good night's sleep. Like I heard it and I said, you need to take care of him, bring him back and put him on that bus in the morning. And so by myself, I 
got him into the car and got him back to the house where we were living, got him into the room. I had to bathe him. He could not move. It was the most disgusting thing I have ever seen Mm. on a person in my presence. Yeah. But bathed him, set up my bed, got him a fresh set of clothes. Like after that, finally he started to open up and we talked for hours. I don't even think we went to sleep. And I drove him back to the bus station, put him on that bus at 11 o'clock in the morning, went and had to clean out my car and my bathtub and every, like clean, I mean, it was bad. Because I can still remember exactly what it smelled like. It was bad. And I remember God nudging me and said, I I sent my son into a world that smelled like that. So people don't smell to me anymore. Mm, That's amazing. That's the love of the Father. And it's very obvious that you jumped in that deep end into that love. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Yeah. Kim? I got nothing. See the tears? I got nothing. (laughs) No questions? (laughs) I'm a little busy crying. (laughs) Jeff, what we'd love to do to end this, it's kind of our tradition, is, is to ask the person if they'll pray for the people listening who are walking their same journey the mess that you've been through, those who don't feel understood, who feel abandoned and rejected and are feeling isolated. Would you pray for those people? Father in heaven, your, your love has eclipsed all other feelings, emotions, depth, pain. God, your love, who can plumb the depths of your love? Who can fathom the extent to which you will go after the ones who are lost. Father, I pray for those who are listening and feel misunderstood, who are hurt, who are living in a life that hurts, who are experiencing the chronic heart pain of abandonment. Lord, I pray that their eyes would be opened to be captivated by the one who completely accepts them and says that they are worth saving. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Jeff, thank you so much for being willing to share your story. Yeah. That's amazing, man. Mm -hmm. It's my pleasure. I know that there's all kinds of stuff that you've experienced, and so maybe in the future we could have you back to share some more. Sure. I'd be happy to. That'd be awesome, man. You're amazing. Hmm. Love you, man. Love you, too. Thank you, Kurt, and thank you, Kim. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So good to share God's presence with you you too thanks so much for listening to this episode of life hurts god heals before you go let me ask you a question are you stuck in any way in your life whether it's being stuck in past wounds that you can't seem to get over or whether it's just being stuck in certain patterns of thinking and behaving now that you just can't seem to get past or you feel stuck when it comes to the future You want to know what God has for you and how to move into that. Well, let me help you with that. As a coach, my goal is to help you discover who God made you to be. What is your unique identity? Let me help you discover that because everything else you want out of life flows from that. If you're interested in having a consultation with me, 
You can reach me at coachkurt777 at gmail.com. Until next time, remember, you are God's beloved, so be loved. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.